Well, it's great to have Gil Cunningham on the podcast today. Gil, you have seen it all. You've borne witness to a lot of changes in the country music business over the last 40 years or so. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the more exciting trends you've seen as of late in country music, especially since the world is all doom and gloom right now in the music business. We could use some good news. Well, I, I think one of the positive things that's happened is, you know, we're getting a lot of really good artists that are starting to break, um, you know, with some really great music. And I think that kind of expands upon the country music, you know, genre. Um, you know, like Ashy McBride is a phenomenal songwriter. She's written some great songs. You've got, you know, people like Hardy and Morgan Wallen and uh, Riley Green writing great songs. Um, Ingrid Andress, uh, another new country artist, great songwriter. So that's the positive thing that I'm seeing as far as the music uh, genre concerns. There's more creativity, I think, now than there's ever been. Yeah, and the, the, the knock against country, uh, especially around, say, 2010, 2011, was that you know, we're starting to really migrate a little bit more towards pop. We saw a little bit of that with the explosion of Luke Bryan and Florida Georgia Line. But in some ways, that's drawn an entirely new audience into the format who previously hadn't been there before. And then you've got this explosion of singer-songwriters like Stapleton and some of the artists you mentioned. And so now that same demographic who might have been drawn in by Florida Georgia Line, they're sticking around because of the substance and structure of the format now. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you can add, add Luke Combs to that list. I mean, there there's some great, uh, great songwriters and they're appealing to a wider, you know, um, a wider spectrum of fans. So, you know, there are some fans that are going to be that are have gone to pop, you know, like Taylor Swift is a prime example, basically a young audience. But but somebody like Luke Combs, you know, he appeals to that younger audience as well as the older demo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's very unique in that aspect whereby, you know, if you're in the 40 plus demo, you dig the substance and style, um, but he's drawing the young people out in droves as well. And um, and, and, and that's going to lead me into my next question is it pertains to uh, the dimension of selection for artists uh, when you're curating these festivals and putting them together. I mean, the headliners, it's sort of like the, that sort of almost obvious, right? It's like you need someone who's going to drive the gate, grab headlines, move tickets. But as you're selecting artists for the remainder of the lineup, what are you taking into account in terms of, of objective material that you can look at, especially in the day and age of streaming and that sort of thing, to evaluate out what artist is going to fit on what day on your festival? Well, what we try to do is we try to be, um, you know, offer some diversity. So for the older demo, we'll typically have some of the, you know, classic country artists and Lone Star and Clay Walker, um, you know, Sawyer Brown, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, that, that appeals to that older demo, but also mix again, you know, again, you have to have the headliners to drive the ticket sales. Um, and it's either like a Luke Bryan, Luke Combs, Eric Church, um, they have their own, you know, major followings, and then we just try to fill in with something that's a little bit more um, eclectic. Sometimes we'll do some things that are, you know, we've we've done a couple of Leonard Skinner shows on fest on country music festivals. This this well, supposedly we we're going to do it in 2020. We had to roll it over to 2021, but so there's a variety of different things. We, you know, the some of the new 
country artists that are more pop oriented, that uh, kind of hip hop, you know, Blanco Brown, for example, um, which appeals to the younger audience. You know, we try to mix some of that in, just give a, a variety of, of music because that's what country music is today. It's, it's a variety. Right. It's uh, it's a very diversified format. And, um, you know, at one point in the 90s, when it was very popular, uh, one of the knocks against the format was that a lot of the artists sounded the same. Uh, they were sort of using the same stylus, <laughs> same producers. But uh, you certainly cannot say that now with the, the diversity in the format. Well, I, I do. I do think there's still some of that uh, in a small on a small scale, but it, it is more diverse. It is more about, you know, the artist. I think that the parameters on deciding who is going to be a country music star have changed over the years, and now it's really more about the music. I mean, truly about the music. Yeah, sort of a less of an accentuation on on um, uh, the brand, although that's still important. And uh, and the music is starting to speak volumes now, which is interesting. But as it pertains to your domains of evaluation when it comes to hard data, um, what are you using now? Because at one point in time when you started in this game, it would have purely been radio. But now you've got so many other um, uh, data points that you can access on artists. And, and so what are you and your team reviewing as you're making those decisions and filling those slots? Well, you know, we've, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, we joined with Live Nation, became a joint venture with Live Nation, and Live Nation has a wealth of information. Uh, you know, they, they do so many shows that the data that they have that's available to us uh, gives us a great perspective on, on you know, making a decision on who to, who to, who to pick or who to choose, or if it comes down to choice between two or three, who's the best in terms of ticket sales uh, or product sales. And then we also look at the streaming numbers, which are also very important. Uh, you know, the, the poll star information is, is, is helpful, but there's just a wide variety of things that we look at now um, in determining who is the best option. And sometimes it come, just comes down to the promoter because I, I buy for the promoters. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the promoter world, uh, so we're talent buyers. And I buy some promoters, and sometimes the promoters say, I, "I'm going to put this act on this festival because I really like their music." So a lot of times, it's yeah. just a personal case of, of, the, of the person that's writing the check. Yeah, fair enough. They they believe in something, and they're willing to uh, put their money where their mouth is. And so, in, in a situation like that, you're probably coming to them with a a, a book of recommendations, and they're sort of picking what they'd like out of that and then you're you're heading out with your team and executing the deals within the budget exactly and t typically what we do jim is we'll ask our client for a wish list of those acts that they think might might work for them or they'd like to see on the festival and we'll ask them to do a little research on their own check with your local radio station see what they're telling you check with the local venue see who's been selling tickets and they get back to us, and then we kind of go through it and, and say, yeah, I think this 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 artist makes the most sense for you in this particular situation. And there are a lot of acts that are really strong regionally, but not strong nationally. So you have to be aware of which artists artists work well in specific markets. So uh, an act that sells 5,000 tickets in central Kansas may not sell 1,500 tickets in central Florida. Right. And, and you're also 
North America wide. You're the largest uh, country music talent buyer North America wide. So you've got a, a pretty good handle on what's happening up in Canada too, which is entirely its own thing. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, the interesting thing about Canada was um, there when, when Sirius XM, when the highway started, Yes. Um, we started seeing acts trending in Canada. And, you know, and, and obviously before this, acts didn't trend in Canada. First, they, tr they would trend in the U.S. and then and then roll into radio, terrestrial radio in Canada. But we were starting to see acts trending well in Canada that weren't trending well in the States in terms of radio. So that was kind of an eye opener. Um, that was another thing we started paying close attention to was but to the music that was being played, uh, being played on the highway, because we would find situations where an artist would have a great demand. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, so Eric Church, which was not a radio guy. I mean, he, he, most of his, he built his, his career a lot on, uh, you know, touring. And we had him, this is, you know, shortly after Sirius XM was, was up and running uh, we had him in Canada. We had him at, and this is when he was just a mid-range jack. I think we paid him like twenty-five grand. We had him at, I think it was maybe two o'clock in the afternoon, in in Craven, uh, for the country country thunder there, and he had a full house. He packed the place, and the radio person from the market said, "I don't even know who this guy is." So you know, you just you pay attention to those little things because all of that is is invaluable the other thing that we watch closely is we do a number of country music festivals we do 20 country music festivals in north america we pay attention to uh product sales to merch so right if we've got a young act that is selling a ton of merch that's always a good indicator so that's another that's another piece of information and data that we use when we're making making decisions yeah and uh that, that's a beautiful thing about data collection in the, in the modern age. We had a similar situation with Kip Moore where, you know, he had some hits in Canada and then he kind of cooled off, but the numbers remain strong in terms of streaming. And so we started doing hard ticket dates up here, you know, cautious. Um, but we were shocked at, at how well the marketplace responded to it, how well the consumers and the fans responded. And, um, and so it's given us that ability, you know, on the promoting side, to really make it much more of a science. Um, and as you alluded to earlier, that, that gives you a lot of empowerment too. And then something, especially inciting that Eric Church example, that's really interesting is that, you know, Eric probably got a second and third look on his forthcoming singles from the folks up here at radio when he was pretty much an unknown based on the fact that you rolled the dice on him first in the market, put him there, and they were able to bear witness to not only how well he drew, but how well he worked the crowd and how the crowd responded to him. So in a, in a weird way, it's like the, the traditional gatekeepers in our business, um, they're, they're, they don't really exist like they did at one point in time, right? Like you can break an artist live and then radio can, terrestrial radio can actually catch up after the fact. Yeah, and you know, a prime example of that is, uh, you know, for Georgia Line, they they couldn't get a record deal to save their soul, and then John Marks, who was at Sirius XM at the time, played Cruise. That song blew up, and 
within a short period of time, just about every major label was offering them a record deal. So that was all that exposure came through Sirius XM. Didn't come through the right. radio. Didn't come through the traditional channels. And and I think the other thing is that now you're seeing live live streaming. You've got you've got artists that are doing their own live streaming networks and live streaming radio stations. So there's there's a multitude of ways that artists can build a career. Um, like you say, it's not there are not just a few gatekeepers now running the show. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, John Marks has uh, has been responsible for um, giving a lot of Canadians a lot of love south of the line by rolling the dice and taking a chance on him. And Florida Georgia Line, not a Canadian act, but you know went on to have the number one selling single of all time with Cruz. And uh, yet they were passed on out of the gate by every label in Nashville, which, which reminds us why it's so important to have multiple gatekeepers and not just not just a few people, because sometimes those people are wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about the Sorry, Gil, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I mean, there have been uh, many times in the past where I hear a song and I say, this, 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 these guys are never going to make it. And lo and behold, the song becomes a huge hit, and away they go. And you probably had the opposite of that situation, too, where you really believed in something early on, and then you've seen it uh, uh, grow and expand. And and have you ever been tempted to get into management? I mean, you're so close to the business, and you're such an expert at what you do there. Has there ever been that temptation to take on a few artists and, de and develop them yourself? Uh, no. Um I, you know, I have a philosophy, and I, I know there's some people that, that you know, uh, are involved in, in publishing and managing and, and record labels, but the management side takes, you know, it's 24-7. If you're going to be in the management business, you got to devote all your time to that. And by doing that, that means I'm not devoting time to what we do best, which is talent buying. So I've always really focused on what we do best, which is talent buying, and try to keep it in that arena, and we've grown a, a company that's been extremely influential in the in the in the country music business and the festival business, and so we just kind of stick to our guns. If that's that's what we're good at, and that's what we really want to focus on. Well, it's uh, it's paid dividends, no doubt about that. And you've built a great reputation in that space, so uh, the focus has done something right for you. Now, let's talk a little bit about the the festival landscape because you've been around really since the inception of the modern country music festival. And there's been so many boom bust cycles in this business. What is it that draws people into the temptation of putting on a festival? And, and the second part of that question is what are they often doing wrong right out of the gate? Well, typically what happens is some, some guy who has money or a group of guys who have money they, they go to a festival and they see these thousands and thousands of people and they think, man, oh man, we could do this. But the fact of the matter is, you know, putting on a festival is very expensive. It's very risky. And there has been a lot of fallout the last couple of years. And I think you're going to see more fallout from 2020, what happened with COVID. There's going to be a number of festivals that aren't coming back. And those that are on the fringe financially, I think are going to be gone. And I think it's going to be even more difficult going forward to start a new country music festival um, because the money, the pricing on it keeps getting, uh, you know, higher and higher. Ten years ago, 
I the most I paid for a country music headliner was a half a million dollars. Today, I mean, you know this, a million to a million five now are what some of these headliners want. Well, right. you you can't triple your your ticket prices because the fans aren't going to come, and you just price yourself out of the market. So you know now you're out there. You got to hustle sponsorships. You got to do a better job of running your concessions. It, it's just the the profit margin has keeps dwindling every year. So and there are a number of festivals that operate in the red, and they keep going because the owners love it and they're willing to pour more money into it. But the fact of the matter is, they're running in red. So it's not an easy thing to start a new festival, whether it's country or rock. Um, particularly if you don't have any experience, you can make a lot of mistakes. And that's one of the things that, you know, we do a lot of consulting in that, in that space. And one of the reasons why, you know, we're doing 20, 20 music festivals in North America is that we've been through it. We've seen what's happened. We can almost, I can almost, you know, point to a scenario and say, listen, these guys are going to lose a bunch of money because they're in the wrong market. Or they have the wrong concept or they've got too much competition in the market. Um, so there's a lot of variables there in order to be successful in the country music or rock music festival business. So I, I think you're going to see a lot of, like I say, I think over the next 12, 18 months, I'm going to see, I think you'll see a number of festivals that'll go by the wayside. Right. I mean, the, uh, the complexity of pulling off a major event is one mistake, obviously underestimating the, the profit margins and the upfront investment that it's going to take to build a reputation as a festival and get it off the ground. Uh, do you think we're going to see a major correction with COVID and, and the fact that a lot of artists haven't worked this year, obviously? Uh, do you see a trend in 2021 and 2022 of artists being more reasonable uh, with or headliners being more reasonable with guarantees, or are we still stuck where we were at a million plus if you want somebody who's really going to move the needle? Well, I, I think, I think you're going to see some movement. I, I think you're going to see some of the artists be a little bit more reasonable and, and the money that they're requesting. Um, the problem is that the acts that you need, the major headliners you need don't need you. So right. they can pick and choose what they want. And they can get the money they want. Um, and so you're, you're, if you're going to bring in an, an act that's going to have a major impact on ticket sales, you're probably not going to get much, much movement on their pricing. Now, below that, the next level, the next level below that, I think that's a different scenario. I think a lot of those acts are going to find that they're going to have to do a little bit more wheeling and dealing because uh, I, I believe, Jim, that in 2021, the number of shows will be diminished. And a lot of these secondary and tertiary markets where a lot of these acts will pick up business like for fairs and small community festivals, I think that's gonna that you're gonna see some of those venues go away or, or not do music in twenty twenty one. So as the demand for music drops, I think you're gonna see the pricing for some of these artists drop. Right. So it might tip the balance of power a little bit for some of the A minus level headliners, but the A plus plus ones are still going to demand what they get generally because they can make it up in other ways. Or maybe they're just in a position where they don't need to work until the market comes back. Well, that's I mean, you know, some of these big acts that just came off tours in, you know, 2019 that are making made 40, 50, 60 million dollars. They can probably sit and wait a year. 
or more. Right. So they're not they're not driven by you know by having to work and having to generate revenue. It's the guys below that. It's the artists that are the next level down, the next level down from that, which they depend on touring to make a living. So they don't have big paydays, and they're working hard to build their their careers. And in a scenario like this, they're literally, you know, out of business. And they most of them do not have, you know, the cash um, to go a year without working. Right. Right. And just switching back to the A plus headliners, the other dynamic that you're always having to navigate, and I know this is a hard ticket promoter too, who does a little bit in the festival world, but obviously nowhere near what we do is um, it's critical if you're launching a new festival to make sure that you don't have a lot of competition in your regional marketplace, because if you do, uh, it is going to drive up the cost of the headliners because there's just only so many of them and they know they can demand a premium. Right. Well, and and so what we look for in the major headliners, um, some of these guys uh, tour every other year. Right. So you you try to pick them up on an off touring season. Um, so that's that's you know, and even the big ones like Eric Church and Luke Combs. I mean, they'll say, okay, this summer we're going to concentrate on fairs and festivals and corporate events. We're not going to tour. So you have to try to get those artists in their off touring cycle because if you don't you won't get them i mean particularly for our events most of them are within the radius of a major play in a major market mm-hmm. so you get knocked out just just from the fact that it's a it's, it's a radius clause violation and the artist does not want you playing uh, in that in that area right now this this also kind of parlays into that question because um and maybe this is a, a speculative question to ask you, but I'm going to ask you to hypothesize. Do you think some of these festivals are going to have to proceed in 2021 with reduced capacities because of, of the, the, you know, some of the righteous fear, but the fear around COVID and how we're going to sort of rebuild the business. Like maybe you've got a 25,000 person festival where suddenly now you're selling 10,000 tickets and that's going to change all the dynamics. Is that something that you're seeing yet or something that you're, you're sort of preparing for? Well, I, I think we're not seeing that yet, but it's, it's way too early. And, but I do think um, that we need to prepare for it. Now, I think getting a vaccine is going to be a huge game changer. We've had a couple small events in the last couple of weeks. And the numbers have been down substantially from what they traditionally are. So right now, with no vaccine, there's a lot of people that are saying, hey, we're not going to a concert. The question is, even with the vaccine going forward, are people going to feel comfortable going to major concerts and being, you know, with thousands of people? I I think that's a question. And I think the older audience is probably going to look at that. I don't think the young kids really care. But the older audience, I think, is the ones that are going to take and take a hard look. They, there may be some that say, listen, I'm done going to concerts. I'm not going to go where there's any major crowds. I don't care if there's a vaccine or not. I'm just not going to run the risk. I think potentially you're going to see some of that. I don't know what percentage of the fan base that's going to be, but I think potentially you're going to see some of that. Um, we have a, uh, you know, people are familiar with Vanderbilt University here in Nashville. 
they're in the process of, uh, they've developed a product, which is like a Tamiflu product, that you can take if you get COVID. So the doctor would prescribe this to you. Okay. Uh, it, it greatly greatly reduces the um, the impact of the virus. Uh, and that's going to be available this fall. So if we had a vaccine, and I believe we're going to have vaccine before the election. So I see I see Trump wanting to have a big splash about getting vaccine out before the election. So I, I think, you know, by November, December, you're going to start seeing uh, the vaccine. We, we've actually um, got approval by uh, the FDA to do um, emergency vaccinations in October. So they have the vaccine and um, they're going to be administrating it in October for emergency cases. So hopefully by November, December, you know, we'll have the vaccine. And then within five or six months, most everybody that wants to get vaccinated can get vaccinated. And that'll change the mindset of, of the concert going, going forward. But I do think there's going to be somewhat of an impact. I think there's going to be people that are going to change their habits. Um, and how they do things, particularly people that have, you know, uh, underlying issues. So like diabetes or, you know, uh, things like that. I I think you're going to see some of that. Well, I think consumer confidence is one issue. The other reality is that uh, people have been hit hard economically, right? And and so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not people have the same level of disposable income that they did have. And uh, maybe that'll still come back or people will still treat themselves. Um, and then the other factor that sort of like is, is weighing in uh, heavily is are the bureaucracies in some of these states or provinces up here, are they going to catch up with the realities of, of the medical community? And so say there's a vaccine, are they going to be lifting some of these restrictions in time for promoters to sell the tickets that they need to in order to recoup? You know, there could be, if there's, if there's lag time in the bureaucracy, that could put a lot of these festivals on their back foot pretty fast as well. Well, and I agree. I, I Again, the hope is, Jim, that by June, um, we'll get back to some sense of normalcy. But um, again, it's going to take the vaccine and that's going to take uh, these other products to help with the virus uh, for us to, to move forward and be successful. The one thing that I've, I've, I've lived through a number of recessions, and the one thing that I've, I've always found, and I think is still true today, when things are uh, when things are bad, when things aren't going well, and people are, you know, depressed and in the dumps, the one place they always seem to escape to is music. So yes. that I, that I think is still a truism, and I still think that that is going to be the case. So I think you're going to see people that are going to just can't wait; they're chomping at the bit to get out and go to concerts. Right, right. From your mouth to God's ears, my friend, I hope you're absolutely right on that. Um, Do you think managers and agents are going to be uh, more protective than ever with uh, deposit structures and that type of thing? Or do you think people are going to actually relax a little bit of that so they can get their artists to work? Like what trends are you seeing in terms of structures of the deal on the artist side or has it changed for you at all well no there 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 is a change that the act the agents are now asking for new deposit policies and i i think anybody and this goes back to 
if you want to start a festival today, in this day and age, if you want to start a festival, regardless if we're buying for you or Jim, if you're buying for them, the agencies are going to want 100% deposit. And they don't want to take any risks. They don't want to have any problems. Um, so they're, they're, they're coming up with a real stringent deposit policy going forward. They're asking for deposits on some of our, it's, and it's, at this point, it's artist specific, but they're asking for deposits in some cases, at least 30 days before the event. So it is changing. And um, I don't know how, how much it'll change, but it, but it is changing. You can see it. That's the downside of the boom bust cycle, right? We've, we've seen a lot of events go south and people unfortunately weren't able to pay the headliners and, and the rest of the artists and people get stiffed and then agents and managers all get concerned they might lose their job and in some cases rightfully so and, uh, and so it all kind of tumbles downhill. No, exactly. So, I mean, if you, again, if someone is thinking about becoming a festival promoter, they better have really deep, deep pockets because, you know, a, a festival that features, you know, a couple major headliners, you're probably going to be looking at a three to half, three to three and a half million dollar budget minimum. So that means you may have to come up with three and a half million dollars up front. Right. So that's the reality. And, um, and nobody wants to take any, even, and again, Jim, I'm sure you're aware that you've seen this before. You can vet somebody. You can vet a guy and he could be a multimillionaire and own all this real estate and have all these stocks and bonds. But that doesn't preclude him from saying, you know what? I'm not going to go forward any farther with this festival. I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to bankrupt it. Yes. So it goes back to, you know, again, it goes back to the agent's going to have to have a sense of security with the with the you know the festival or or promoter that he's dealing with to make sure that you know uh they don't get caught in the middle and as you know um the artist puts it back on the promoter whether it's a promoter like you or a promoter like the uh, that promotes a festival if you lose a bunch of money you're going to pay the artist that's just the way it is they are yeah. going to expect full payment There'll be very, very, very little, you know, sympathy about the fact that you lost a bunch of money. So don't go into it thinking, hey, if we don't make money, I think these artists will come back and help us out. Now, that doesn't work that way. No, no, that would be a very naive way of taking a look at things. And uh, I often wonder for a guy who's doing the level of volume like you do, how many how many rich guys with stars in their eyes you talk out of doing events every year? Because, you know, there must be a, a plethora of people who call the office and, you know, they want to book a bunch of multi-million dollar headliners, but, but your alarm bells are going off through that conversation. I'm sure your instincts are pretty finely tuned at this point. Well, and, and, and that's, I mean, at, at this point in my career, you know, if someone wants to come to us and have us, buy the talent for them or produce their festival for them. Uh, you, you have to know you have to have 100% of money up front. If you can't, yeah. we, can't we, we can't work with you because that's what the agents are going to expect and there's no way to get around it. So you just better prepare yourself. And even even on the smaller shows, Jimmy, if, if a new promoter pops up in Calgary, Alberta, they're probably going to want half the money up front and the other half before the event, correct? Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and you know we we've we've seen that you know on uh, hard ticket guarantees. Obviously, with soft ticket, it's it's you almost have to be more stringent, especially if it's first time buyers. Um, you know, you just you have to protect the artist, and I understand that from an agent's perspective for sure. You know, but there's this interesting balance that's happening now too, where you want you want your clients to get out there and work, and you know you um, but you have to protect them at all costs. So the client's putting pressure on you to get more shows on the books, but you know it's like hey. As I often say to my clients, it's not a show until the deposit's in the bank and you're paid the balance. Like it really isn't. So we can take an offer, we can take a look at it, but unless they meet our terms in terms of uh, financing, you know, it's it's not as good as the paper it's written on. Right, and and the other thing is, you I mean the agent's job is to sell his artist. The agent's job is not to help the promoter. Agent's job is to sell his artist, get the best deal he can for his artist. Obviously, he doesn't want to put the promoter out of business. He doesn't right. want to put the promoter, but his, that's not his first. That's not his first. No, that's not the fiduciary duty, right? You know, you, you definitely, especially if it's a good promoter and they've been around for a while and and they have uh, helped foster the business of your artist. You know, you you don't want to put that individual in a position where they go bankrupt and then you've got no one to call in in Kamloops, British Columbia anymore, right? But at the same time, you're right. You gotta absolutely hundred percent represent the interests of the artist and um and then remind the artist that you're representing their interests when you are saying no to things that don't make sense, which you know is a whole other conversation full of nuances sometimes. Right. So let's talk a little bit about radius clauses because I think I think anybody who even has a cursory knowledge of the business understands that if you're paying a million dollars for a headliner, you do not want that headliner popping up down the road. Um, but you also want to make sure that you're creating somewhat of a proprietary lineup uh, from start to finish on the bill, right? So that's also the goal of a, of a talent buyer to make sure that the festival bill doesn't emulate something that's four hours down the road. So how do you sort of navigate those conflicts when you're trying to acquire, you know, a, an artist that's maybe third or fourth to close, they're on the bill earlier in the day, you want some exclusivity, but you also understand that you're not paying them necessarily uh, anywhere near what you're paying the headliner. So how do you usually balance that? Is it sort of a take it or leave it or, are there factors that play into it um, for you as you're as you're putting those deals together? Well, it depends on the festival, depends on the market, but most of the festivals, particularly ones in Canada, it's the 200 mile radius clause. And they don't want the artist playing, and it doesn't make any difference what level, they don't want the artist playing within 200 miles. And that's prior to and 38 days after the event. They want to, they want to have as exclusive uh, schedule as possible like you said they don't want to emulate what's going on somewhere down the road so that's really important to some of these promoters is to keep their schedule as unique as possible um you know there's example i can give is that stagecoach festival in in indio california which is outside of the la market which is a huge market um they palm desert yeah palm desert they'll pay uh, one and a half times the money that the artist, so if an artist and the headliner is asking for a million dollars, they'll they'll pay more in order to uh, 
secure the artist's exclusivity in that region for a period of time. So, you know, that's one strategy that some promoters use. They've been very successful with that strategy. And there's other, other uh, t- you know, promoters, festival promoters that, that try to do the same thing, is to try to keep their markets as ex- exclusive as possible. Now, if it's a baby act, if it's like an act just coming out and the baby act, you know, is, is the first support on a tour going through Canada, then, you know, sometimes we can get that cleared. But typically, and particularly if it's, if it's a Canadian act that's got, you know, some strength in the marketplace, um, it's it's hard to let the let the artist, you know, play within that radius clause. It's best for the festival to try to preserve that. You know, I, I know that there's, scenarios we've come up with some scenarios where um we've worked together on trying to get an act and we've got some conflicts um in the market an act that you represent an act we're trying to book but overall there the promoter wants to try to keep that keep that schedule as unique as possible yeah and i understand that and, and that's that's a place where the promoter has a little bit more power as well in the in the equation you know the artist demands a high guarantee and that's certainly understandable but then it's up to the promoter to say, hey, listen, we're going to pay your guarantee. We're going to pay you better than your guarantee. But we also demand this level of exclusivity. So that that's where you have that power to push back a little bit in that dynamic with the agent. Right. And, I, you know, I've had situations where, you know, an agent will come to me and say, we want we, we want you to clear this. We got to get you to clear this. And we we basically said, listen, if that date's that important to you, you should probably take that date. And then maybe we can talk about the following year where where we can get and if the artist is climbing up, where we can get a better better shot at it. So you know, it it, it flows both ways. I mean, there there have been uh, acts that we wanted that the the agents will not clear for us because the the act is a support act on a major tour, and it and it's hitting a couple of markets with a festival of markets. Right. Yeah. And listen, I, I obviously I've been on both sides of that discussion. I certainly understand it. Um, I do really like what you said about baby acts. And I've had that experience with you, by the way, for the audience listening. Uh, Gil and Troy especially have been super reasonable. If an artist is on their way up and they have a great support slot on a tour that actually helps them build optics and equity, you guys are pretty reasonable going, yep, yeah, that's fine. You're not drawing the hard ticket. Uh, there might be some people in that audience who uh, gets a chance to see that artist. They're exposed to that artist, and now they might be more compelled to buy a ticket to the festival. Right. Yeah, that's happened a few times for sure. So as the landscape begins to uh, correct itself after COVID, um, and I know this is an estimate, but would you say – 10% of the festivals aren't going to come back, 5%, 20%. Like, I mean, I would say in Canada, we're looking at probably all the majors are looking to remain intact. But outside of that, I'd say it's a good 10 to 20% are just taking the year off in 2021 and may never come back. What's the trend you're seeing south of the border? That's probably, that would that, that would be what I would tell you is between 10 and 20% down here. I think we've seen a couple now that have gone silent that have been around for a long time. Uh, one of them has been in existence for 30 years. Um, looks like they're not coming back. So I think you're going to see, I, I think you're going to see a number of those and, and it, it's probably going to fall in that 10 to 20% per, percent range. Right. 
Yeah, and that's gonna that's gonna definitely shift things in terms of uh, your buying power because uh, most of your clients are well entrenched in the marketplaces and people know the bills get paid and and you know you're gonna have a little bit more muscle than you even had before, especially with some of those artists who are you know on their way up and maybe they're at a B minus or B plus level or um, you know moving towards A but they're not quite there yet they're going to be a little bit hungrier for work because some of that work that they might've regularly had in normal years is just dried up. Exactly. So tell us a little bit about the live nation acquisition. You'd been a lone wolf for a long time. You and your wife uh, ran the companies had great levels of success. Um, I know you well enough to know that, that this deal must've made sense for you on a number of levels in order for you to go ahead and, and sign on the dotted line. So what were some of the advantages to your clients, for example, your festival clients that came along with the, the Live Nation deal that you did? Well, there's there's a couple things. So um, we made the decision, like you said, there were, there were a number of parameters that we looked at in making the decision. Um, one of them, believe it or not, was liability. So- Right. As we, as we think, see things progress, we see there's more and more liability um, involved in being in the entertainment business. Um, you saw what happened with with you know the, these festivals that that have had you know major shooters shooting situations, Las Vegas, um, you know events like that. You know if something like that happened to one of my events, it could very well put me out of business. So. Liability was a, was was a consideration. the The other thing, um, probably one of the major things for us, was access to information. It gets back to data again. So you know, we want to give our clients the best advice that we can give them in buying talent. And obviously, we want them to see. We want to see them to be successful, so they they're they're with us for years and years. And that's how we built our our client base: is providing customer service, providing our clients with the best tools that we can give them to make the right decisions for their event. So having that database for us was, was a huge, huge advantage. Um, and obviously, you know, it's Live Nation, the cachet there is is major. I mean, everybody knows that's the largest entertainment company in the world. So, you know, uh, aligning with them added additional cachet to us. Um, and that, that made a big difference. Um, so, you know, those were the kind of things that we looked at. Um, you know, they had better, the insurance uh, programs were better than what we had. Um, right. You know, there were, there were a num number of benefits to, to our employees that um, were enticing. So, uh, you know, it was all, it wasn't, the decision wasn't based on one thing. It was based on a number of things. And, We've been approached before by a number of companies to sell, and we've never had much ambition to even pursue it. But when Live Nation came to us uh, and talked to us, and, and, and Tim, it took us, you know, eight months to sort this out. So, but once we made the decision, pulled the trigger, we've been really happy with it. Live Nation is a great company. They've got some great assets that, you know, um, they have insurance people. Uh, in house, they have security people in house. Uh, they they stay on top of the changes in the entertainment business, 
Uh, you know, they, they provide whatever help we need. They, they've been a great partner, and we've been really happy and very satisfied uh, being part of the Live Nation family. So, you know, it's been a good thing for us. And, um, you know, you see what this whole COVID thing, you know, throws things in disarray. And, you know, we, we, we feel comfortable with where we're at. I mean, we, we feel like we're going to, you know, we're going to uh, go get through this. We're going to be successful and we'll come out on the other end and hopefully we'll be doing better than what we did before. So uh, it, it, for us, it, it was the right, right deal at the right times. Yeah. You're in a good position to weather the storm and um, typically a deal that makes sense uh, for you as an individual and, and, and your wife and your employees, but also makes sense for your clients. It's pretty hard to say no to. So was it Bob Rue that, that approached you or, um, like they must have approached you uh, multiple times over the years. Uh, was it uh, was it him that reached out? Well, it was um, it was both both Bob and Jordan Zachary. Uh, Jordan's in, involved with the acquisitions at Live Nation. He's out in LA, so right. those those were the two, two two individuals that communicated with me. Right. Well, congratulations, man. You've uh, you've been a mentor. Uh, knowingly or unknowingly to a lot of people in this business, including myself. And uh, it's nice to see you get to that level and, you know, chalk up another win for the good guys. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate it. And Hey Jim, you know, you, you've done a tremendous job up there. I don't think people realize how difficult it is to be successful in this business. It's very, very competitive. You've done a great job up there. You've been really creative. You created situation scenarios for your clients. That most you know most other promoters wouldn't even go near. So, uh, and that's what it takes to be successful. You gotta you gotta be the guy that knows what to do and how to do it and when to do it, and get it done. Exactly. Yeah. No. Thank you for saying that. I um, I've really enjoyed getting a chance to chat with you. And every time I see you in an event, I always want to grab ten minutes of your time, but I'm always way behind because uh, <laughs> your dance card is always full, as they say. So. Thanks for taking this time to chat with me today, Gil. Uh, best of luck in the future with you and, and the new endeavor and the new company. And uh, uh, just keep crushing it out there, my friend. We need you. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Jim. Okay. Thank you.